Welcome to a special edition of Neurotalk, part two of a series on scholarly publishing. I'm Ada Yee. And I'm Erica Senor. Last year, our Neurotalk colleagues Nick Weiler and Mark Padalina brought you a discussion with John Sack of Highwire Press on the future of scholarly publishing. Continuing that conversation, we're here today with Katja Rose, editor-in-chief of Neuron, which will likely be familiar to many of our listeners as one of the premier scientific journals in the field of neuroscience. We'll be talking about her work at Neuron, as well as some of the broader issues in academic publishing, such as peer review, reproducibility, and technology in publishing. Uh, Welcome to the show, Dr. Rose. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. All right. So just to get started, many neuroscientists all over the world, they vie to get their papers into a journal like Neuron, um, probably because of its reputation and visibility. However, at some point, Neuron started somewhere. So maybe um, you can start us off by introducing Neuron's origins and early mission and what it has become now, so um, how it gained traction to become the sort of journal that it is today. Sure. So the the history of Neuron now goes back quite a number of years. So Neuron was started as the second journal in the Cell, what became the Cell Press family of journals. So Cell was launched now over 40 years ago, and Neuron was launched in 1988. So we're just over 25 years. I think we're 27 years. Mm -hmm. And it was initially launched as a molecular cellular journal, so a journal that was um, coming on board at the time that there was a molecular revolution going on in, in neuroscience. And it was seen as a journal that could fill a niche that didn't exist at the time. So taking off from the strengths of cell in molecular biology, but bringing it to the neuroscience community. And it was initially edited by a group of academic editors, largely based at UCSF, um, as well as Greg Gassick, who was the original editor at the Cell Press offices in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Neuron is still based. Um, I came on board at Neuron in 2000 and have now been there for 16 years. I'm just about to celebrate my 16th anniversary. (laughs) And I can say even when I came on board, the journal had already changed a lot. So it really moved from being a molecular cellular journal to a journal that was more broadly encompassing of all of neuroscience. So systems, cognitive, disease-relevant work. And that's still our mission. Our mission is to be the place for neuroscientists, however you define yourself as a neuroscientist, to be able to publish their work. And so we publish from molecular cellular, systems, cognitive, where making a play right now to sort of bring more neuroengineering into the journal. We're interested in computational neuroscience. So if it's about the brain and it's about mechanisms of brain function, we're interested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was, was that a conscious decision to broaden neuron, you think, at the time? Yeah, it certainly was. And I think all of the strategic decisions in terms of expanding the scope are, are conscious. But it also reflects, I think, where the, the, the pace of the field has been going. I mean, the field has been moving um, you know, outwards from its original scope within just more molecular cellular physiology type studies. Mm-hmm. So are there some, uh, I guess, subfields of neuroscience that you think are beyond the scope of neuron? Or would you sort of open to almost anything? You know, we talk about this a lot, and I think neuroscience is a really interesting field when I think about how neuroscience as a field compares to maybe some of the, the fields that my other colleagues at Cell Press cover in their journals, in that it's really not a very defined field, right? It's really more an umbrella field mm-hmm. of many fields. And I think when we talk about it amongst the editorial team, our view is if it's about the brain, it's about the nervous system, we're potentially interested, but our our, our mission is really around mechanisms of action, So not so much around just what the brain might do, but also how it does it. And by mechanisms, I mean, I think sometimes when, especially when editors use the word mechanisms, people often think molecular mechanisms or cellular mechanisms. And that's not really how we use the term. It's really about understanding the how as much as as the what or the phenomenology. And so that's where we put our scope. Um, 
right now. I mean, we're obviously really interested as the field is in tools and technology. Mm -hmm. So more as tools can help us learn about mechanisms than as tool studies might tell us something about mechanisms. So as the editor-in-chief, so what are some of your main uh, responsibilities at the magazine? Um, and sort of what do you find most interesting about that and what is the most sort of challenging aspect? Yeah, so as, as editor-in-chief of the journal, in the way that the journals are, journals are structured at Cell Press, I mean, a big part of my job is leading the team. So, mm -hmm. I mean, I think of all of my activities as being kind of on behalf of myself, but also of my colleagues, obviously. So there's a lot of managerial responsibilities in my job. And all of that is really in support of the mission of the journal. So most of our editors have come on, I probably all of our editors, in fact, have come on as scientists, out of postdocs, out of graduate careers. And so usually without training in publishing, and part of, a big part of my job is to bring people on to publishing and what publishing is all about, what editing is all, all about, and to really kind of train editors to become great editors. So I take that part of my job very seriously. Um, I'm also there, you know, again, on behalf of the whole team to really set the strategy for the journal. So that involves things like what the scope of the journal will be, how we approach peer review, kind of the values that we bring for, to peer review, um, where we set the bar in terms of decisions, in terms of, I mean, obviously we're aiming for a very high quality bar, but the journal also sees many papers that are of high technical quality that we may not choose to publish because we don't think they are right where we would want them to be in terms of making a, a big advance for the broader field. They may be really great papers for a journal that's focused on a specialized topic, but maybe not for neuron. So where we set that bar is something that an editor-in-chief is also involved in determining. And then we think a lot about kind of the future of the journal and how it fits in with the company, with uh, our industry right now. We're focusing a lot on issues around rigor and reproducibility. Uh, we think a lot about publishing as an industry, as a business. Um, I'm also on the senior management team at Cell Press, and so I spend a lot of time thinking about that. Mm -hmm. um, but overall, I'm there to be the leader of the team that runs Neuron and mm -hmm. also the leader of the journal. Um, I do spend a lot of time out in the community talking to scientists, talking to students and postdocs. And there it is about representing both Neuron and the publishing process and kind of opening that black box for people. Mm -hmm. So when you um, are setting out to, you know, for each issue, do you have a quota or an anti-quota? Like, okay, we have, you know, 10 systems papers, so we're not going to accept another one. Or is there that sort of consideration? Or do you just sort of go with the flow, what's coming in, what's being accepted, and then just sort of turning it out as it's coming in? Yeah, so so we absolutely don't have quotas. We don't have quotas on fields. We don't have quotas on um, numbers of papers, in even in, in the journal. Um, what we're trying to put out every month is an issue that we feel sort of broadly represents the field, what's interesting in the field, that meets our bar for quality, both technical mm -hmm. quality and the quality of the advance. And when I say that, I think people... Um, sometimes have a hard time understanding what that is, and that that's for good reason. That's a very subjective thing to say. But really what we're looking for is papers that will have an impact beyond their immediate community that really need to be something that we feel like the broader community, the broader neuroscience world would be interested in knowing about. And so when we're evaluating submissions, we're really evaluating them on a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, we, we really don't get into situations where we're like, oh, we have too many papers this month. We're not going to publish this one. Mm -hmm. um, and it's more that you calibrate the bar to have enough papers that you can fill issues, but not so many that you really become an encyclopedic <laughs> volume yeah. every month. And it's worked out. It's, it's kind of a, a not a very rigorous mathematical mm -hmm. formula, but it's certainly not based on quotas. 
On the flip side of that, an elite journal like Neuron, you probably get kind of very high-level view of the field, and some might even say you might be able to see so-called trends. Um, can you tell us what you think some of the forces are that drive those trends, and also, you know, as an editor, what kind of things can you see about the field very broadly? Yeah, that, that's a great question. So, I mean, I think the whole enterprise of science is very symbiotic in its own way. So I, I think that in some ways, as an editor, you certainly aspire to be on the leading edge of that, to be able to bring to the community what's what's interesting, what's timely, what's relevant and of the moment. But, I mean, that certainly doesn't mean that we're going to sort of perfectly be able to capture kind of what's what's coming up on the sidelines or or maybe what's underrepresented for reasons that we really can't control. So first off, I mean, we publish research papers and reviews, the research papers that we publish obviously come out of a funding environment. And so topics that are better funded are are going to be better represented in Mm. the papers that we have to choose from or that we have um, the ability to recruit from. On the other hand, as an editor, I think one part of the journal that really interests me is what we call the, the, the front end, so the reviews content, where here as an editor, I think you can really pick out areas that maybe are coming up in the field, but that the journal hasn't been representing for whatever reason, or maybe are hidden in the field that people aren't quite seeing yet, but you think for whatever reason are going to be interesting or um, in some way relevant for people to be talking about and thinking about. And so, you know, as an editor, you're both kind of responding to trends in the field more than you are leading them, but you have the capacity to, to really, I think, nudge the field to look in certain directions. And I think that's what's exciting to me about being... Um, an editor and at least editor in chief at Neuron is to, to really kind of be able to not just react to the trends, but also point people to things that you you think are interesting that are up and coming. Have you, do you have a specific memory of the time when this happened? Well, one area that um, I mean, certainly it wasn't um, a trend that we created, but that I think um, we certainly did bring into the journal very consciously was neurogenetics. Mm. And it had been many, many years that certainly um, I and other colleagues at Neuron had been thinking that there's really interesting things going on in human genetics. It's going to have an important influence on neuroscience, but they're not typical neuron papers. First of all, they have no mechanism, right? Most Mm -hmm. of the um, kind of classical genetics papers, even the GWAS studies, they certainly have important implications for neuroscience. And now you see this. You see studies... um, Still not frequently, but but not infrequently that really bring together the, the genetics with a potential neurobiological mechanism. And so at the time that we were thinking, you know, genetics is going to be important for neuroscience, it, you can start to see bits and pieces of this fermenting. It wasn't widely accepted by the neuroscience community, and we thought really hard about, is the time right? Is Neuron the right journal for these kinds of papers? We talked to people on our ed board both geneticists on our ed board and non-geneticists, and got very mixed views. Hmm. Um, definitely there were some neurobiologists who thought, you know, no, those go in other journals. They're, you know, neuroscientists, they're not even going to be able to read some of these papers. The you know, statistics behind some of this work is really something that the genetics community can sort out, but the neurobiologists aren't going to be as interested until we have a biological mechanism and, and these papers aren't going to have it. Or others thought, oh, it, well, if you try to bring those papers into neuron, those geneticists are going to want to add mechanism, and the mechanism might not be as robust as, as you would normally want to neuron standards. And in the end, we sort of took all that feedback in and really felt like there was a place that neuron could contribute and that, that, that there was a caliber of genetics papers that, while not at the level of a neurobiological mechanism yet, is going to have important implications that the neurobiology community needs to be aware of and needs to be engaging with. And we did, and we brought in some 
really interesting um, initially genetic studies of autism, mm -hmm. ALS, and are still sort of working in this area. So I think that's one example of, you know, again, it was a trend in the making that we could see happening. It wasn't something that we created, so it certainly wasn't that Neuron created um, you know, the upsurge in neurogenetics, but, but we tried to create a space in the journal for that kind of work. And similarly, right now, we're really interested in neuroengineering. And certainly, there are studies in that space that are, you know, very relevant to, to neuron. I mean, people doing great work even here at Stanford, Carl Dizeroth, Mark Schnitzer's work. But not all neuroengineering work, I think, is necessarily going to be quite right for the neuron audience. But there's sort of a border there of maybe traditional neuron-level neuroengineering work and things outside of it that maybe are a little bit out of the comfort zone of many neuroscientists, but that they ought to know about. And it's really a direction that we also see the field moving in, and we're excited to be a part of that. Mm. So do you ever feel pressure to get on board with a trend and start publishing papers that are using a particular technique or geared towards a question that, you know, maybe you don't necessarily think you would otherwise publish? Yeah, that's a good question. Not really. I mean, maybe it has to do more with my philosophy as editor-in-chief that I certainly feel that, you know, I and the other editors kind of bring a mindset to papers and our own perspectives. But at the same time, I feel really strongly that the journal needs to represent the neuroscience community. And so my reaction to something like that, if there's you know, suddenly kind of a, an engagement around a certain methodology or a topic or whatever that, that seems all to be capturing the interests of the neuroscience community. I mean, more interested in trying to figure out why that is mm -hmm. and to find a way to represent that. But um, I, I can't think of an example where I felt like, oh, I really don't really want Neuron to be publishing that, but we're going to do it anyway because uh -huh. people want us to. Um, I think we're here to sort of represent the breadth of neuroscience and what it's about, and that's going to be you know different flavors that are going to fit with different people's interests more than others. But I think it's a very broad community, and, and there, there's certainly going to be differences in opinions on kind of what's more or less interesting. Uh -huh. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so getting down to what drew you to being an editor, what was your path to actually going to Neuron, um, and was it very direct, or what are some of the steps you took along the way? Yeah, I <laughs> I think of myself as having a very indirect career path. Um, I mean, it may not seem that way, you know, looking looking back now, but when I think about sort of how I got where I am, I mean, it, it certainly didn't feel very direct at the time, and, and I think it really wasn't. So I, I like to tell people that story because I think especially nowadays when I talk to young students, there's often this sense that, you know, two steps out of the womb, you need to know what you're going to do with the rest of your life. And I always <laughs> encourage people to kind of take the longer road and and, and, and be open, be open to the things that... Um, that you like, that you're good at, that sort of drive you, that bring passion to your life. And I think then you'll find the right career route. So, um, I mean, going way back, I was a, a biology major as an undergrad. I went to Brown University, um, and a great place for liberal education, no core requirements. So you had a lot of room. Um, and I majored in biology and European history. Um, but it was evolutionary biology, so no neuroscience. So this is the other thing I like to tell people is that I certainly didn't emerge from the womb as a neuroscientist. <laughs> um, and after college, I mean, I sort of had um, a difficulty deciding kind of what I wanted to do with the rest of my life. What I really loved about history was kind of telling stories and, and looking at stories and kind of dissecting kind of um, the history of, of, of people, of places. And there's a little bit of that, I think, now in what I like about my job and about um, how one thinks about kind of the evolution of scientific work and, and trends and fields. 
Um, after college, I went uh, and worked at the Whitehead Institute um, in a, a, essentially a virology lab because I wanted to learn molecular biology. Four-ish years after that, applied to grad school and um, wound up down the road at UCSF as a biochemistry cell biology student in Mark Tessie Levine's lab, who's mm. the new president of Stanford, yes. so highly relevant. <laughs> and so, I mean, interesting point, and kind of maybe the dirty secret of the editor of Neuron <laughs> is I was not a, a neuroscience uh, mm-hmm. graduate student or undergraduate, for that matter. Mm-hmm. And I think it was um, at some point in Mark's lab that I sort of started to think that academia wasn't for me, for a whole host of reasons, and nothing negative about academia. It was, I think, more about um, what I wanted in my life and how I wanted to structure my career and started thinking about the things that I liked, the things that I thought I was good at, and what kinds of jobs might fit that. And um, I would say kind of one pivotal point was at some point in graduate school, I think fairly early on, I actually spent some time with with Mark and with Corey Goodman at the time, um, who was a collaborator, and they were writing a, a book chapter, and I got involved in helping them edit that. And there was something about that combination with, I think, um, what I liked about kind of putting scientific stories together. I liked writing papers. I liked editing other people's work. I did. I like giving journal clubs as a student that um, something about editing seemed appealing. I knew nothing about it, hadn't really met editors. I had published my own papers. My first paper was in Neuron, which was exciting. Um, And um, kind of applied on a lark and thought, you know, Let's just see what this is about. And I, I knew if I didn't like it, I could I could shift course, and it fit like a glove. So I've been there ever since. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So before that that point, did you think you wanted to be a research scientist, or what were your career goals before then? Well, certainly I entered graduate school thinking that I wanted to be a research scientist. And actually, I mean, the act of doing experiments and of designing experiments and, and um, putting studies together into papers and, and the research itself – I loved. I think I would still love that. I mean, mm-hmm. I actually miss parts of that when I do lab visits. Um, mm-hmm. I get a little jealous of people sort of tinkering in labs. Um, but I think it was more there were I think I probably would have been, a, you know, a good academic um, scientist, but I didn't think I'd be a great one. And I thought that there were other parts of um, how one kind of leads one's career as, as a manager in that context that I was probably less interested in. But mm-hmm. I, I, you know, have many, many friends who went that path, and they're great at it, and they love it, and I think it's uh, a great career path, so I certainly hope that people um, continue to be encouraged to go that path, because I think it brings many benefits to one's lives. It just wasn't the right thing for me. Mm -hmm. So do you find that a lot of the editors that you hire are sort of in the same situation where they entered into graduate school, maybe even did a postdoc, thinking they were going to be a research scientist, and then at some point changed their minds, or there are people who are sort of starting out with the goal of being in editing or in publishing? Well, I think a lot of things have changed. I mean, I'd mentioned I started at Neuron um, in 2000. I've been here 16 years, feeling a little old right now. And I think when I was thinking about my career paths, I just didn't enter graduate school thinking that there were other paths. It wasn't, I just don't think it was something that people really thought about. Um, I don't know. I'm not, you know, for better or worse, people didn't think that way. I find now when I talk to students, and I talk to students a lot, um, are coming into graduate school very primed, um, very primed to think about other things. And, you know, I think that has pluses and minuses. I mean, I think people seem so much more informed and mature about careers than certainly I felt at the time. Um, But on the other hand, I think sometimes, you know, maybe people are already really nervous about where they're going to be. And Mm -hmm. that brings a kind of level of inflexibility that I think um, is unfortunate because I, I do think looking back, never thought I would say this, 
Um, the grad school is, you know, is one of the best times of your life is in some way. <laughs> I never, ever thought I would say that. Um, I mean, the openness of it and, you know, I mean, you have tremendous responsibilities, but the general kind of lack of the kinds of responsibilities that come out yeah. later on when you're when you're further along and in your career. So I would encourage students to kind of be open-minded. I mean, I think the number of options that people have these days is, I mean, amazing. But um, I do sometimes worry um, in, in discussing this, you know, both the students and with their, with their faculty mentors, that people um, are turning away from academia, I think, too quickly sometimes. Mm-hmm. I think all careers have their pluses and minuses. Mine does too. Um, and um, there's a lot of great things about being an academic. It's not going to be for everyone, but it's a great path for for people who who want to who want to have the things in their life that I think academia brings to you. Mm-hmm. So peer review is something that you deal with quite a bit as an editor. Um, and but just to take a step back and think about some of the broader issues at play with peer review. So this is one of the keystones of academic life. You know, if you think of academia. Um, as being kind of an industry where our main product is our data and our publications. This is how we talk to each other. This is what we do. Um, Peer review is really our only method of certifying what it is we're producing. Um, So how would you, as an editor, uh, define or describe peer review, and what are some of the big challenges you see regarding the current system? I mean, peer review, it's hard to define it without using the words peer and review. Mm -hmm. Um, It really, I think it is, I I think peer review has its challenges, but I still think, especially seeing it from the side that I'm on, is that um, it's probably still the the best way to evaluate scientific work. I mean, some of the limitations come from practical constraints. I mean, typically, when you talk about peer review, either for manuscripts in the publication process or grants, um, it's a, a limited scope of reviewers that you bring on board, you know, whether it's two or three or slightly more than that. It's a small group to collectively be evaluating and um, maybe ranking the significance of, of a study. But I think the idea of having experts in the field, your peers, be able to give um, authoritative opinions on a piece of work is, is a good thing. Um, I think it's still better than, I think, other options, you know, other options being either maybe just one editor gives that opinion, so just my opinion, mm-hmm. um, or or the other option of just putting it out there um, and then about asking the community to weed through that. Um, I think for the latter, the the volume of work and the level of expertise that's really required to evaluate carefully. Um, you know, the technical aspects of a lot of this work, let alone kind of where it fits in with the other literature in the field. It's just not something that I could see easily coming out of more of a crowdsourced scheme. I mean, it's possible down the road. I mean, you know, we we, we haven't had um, opportunities around crowdsourcing with um, the kind of Internet applications that we have now for, for very long, and maybe that will get a lot better. But right now I still think it's the best thing that we have. Um, and where I see the limitations, the big limitations these days, I think, are peer review is highly reliant on getting the right peer reviewers. So mm-hmm. by however you define that, but basically I would define it as people have the appropriate expertise, um, technical and otherwise, who um, are able to spend the time with with uh, um, the paper and um, have a level of judgment. So being able to kind of balance those issues around kind of technical quality with maybe more pragmatic concerns. 
And that's really hard these days. And I don't think it's um, the fault of anybody really other than the, the world that we live in is unbelievably busy. And the biggest bottleneck I see towards quality of peer review is just um, the fact that it's hard to get good reviewers. Even at a journal like Neuron, we work very, very hard to get good reviewers, um, first of all, to say yes to our invitation and then to really be able to spend the time on a paper. I, you know, I don't think people sometimes worry about degradation of the quality of peer review. And I can't really speak to that on a meta level. I can only speak to what I see at Neuron. And I don't really see a major decrement in the quality that, that of the reviewer feedback that's coming back, but it's just a lot harder to get that feedback. And you can imagine it, you know, whether you're an author or a reviewer, you're busy. Um, and as an author, I mean, you know that. You know that the reviewers who are looking at your paper are really busy. And these are incredibly complicated papers. When I look back at what a neuron paper was even 10 years ago, mm-hmm. it's nothing compared to the papers now that are highly collaborative, multiple mm-hmm. techniques, multiple levels of evaluation. And to have one person who's supposed to really, you know, well, one of three people sort of deep dive into that, um, that's really challenging. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned before, you know, the editors that you have at the magazine all have PhDs. Mm-hmm. How Some percentage of them have even done postdocs. Um, so is there... I don't know. Is there a way to sort of supplement peer review with the editors? I mean, presumably these are people who have a lot of knowledge about science, who have technical knowledge. You know, the postdocs yeah. and graduate students are the ones doing the experiments, especially sort of fresh out well, of that. Well, certainly. And, and it's it's not even supplement. I mean, we're the, we're the, the first pass on all papers. Uh-huh. So, um, you know, most of the editors at, at Neuron and Cell Press have, have postdocs. I think my experience um, of not having one is a little bit unusual. And I, I think the probably a reason why why that sort of even came up in my career was because I'd spent quite a lot of time in lab even before graduate school. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, the editors, when a paper comes in, each editor is assigned um, papers to handle, and they handle it throughout the process. And their first job is to evaluate that paper. We, we read the paper in full. We read some of the literature around the paper. They assess um, where, in our editorial opinion, the work fits um, mm-hmm. into the field. They are at that point sort of thinking about who might advise on the paper as a reviewer. And and they're making evaluations. They're not a reviewer um, under the neuron system, not an official reviewer, but they certainly bring their perspective on it. But you also have to you know, realize, I mean, Neuron has a staff of eight editors. We're covering a very broad field. Mm-hmm. Um, certainly in fields that you're trained in, you might be the technical expert, but you're really not for a whole lot of other fields, and they're going to be more appropriate reviewers. And so the editor's job is less to act as a technical reviewer than um, to have that sort of big picture view on the paper. And, you know, if in principle it's all technically solid, kind of where would it fit in? I mean, I think there's potentially other models of peer review that could make better use of kind of distributed evaluation in maybe more postdocs, bringing more postdocs into the peer review process. And that certainly already happens. So we're Mm -hmm. very open at Neuron in having, um, you know, lab heads that we invite to review work with their postdocs. And we're more than open. We're encouraging of it because we really want to train the next generation of, of peer reviewers. But another job of the journal is really to also um, ensure a consistency in the review process. And so one of the ways that we do that is to really have, you know, kind of a close handle on who's reviewing their expertise, not just their technical expertise, but also their style of reviewing. I mean, Mm -hmm. we really want reviewers who are fair-minded, who, um, I mean, obviously ethically-minded, that's a given, but who also are able to kind of look at papers pragmatically. I mean, I don't believe any paper um, is a perfect paper or, or, mm-hmm. or the end of the story. 
um, and we publish papers in Neuron all the time that are going to have gaps. I mean, the question just is sort of how big are the gaps and how important is the insight that comes from around the gaps. And mm -hmm. so you want reviewers to really see that. And so we certainly, in the course of using reviewers, you get reviewers who um, they're really great. They're, they're, they can point out every technical hole, but maybe they're so critical that, you know, we'd have a hard time publishing. Yeah. Um, on the other hand, you don't want reviewers who just are, are too soft and, uh -huh. and who maybe aren't giving it a critical evaluation because um, not just the editors, but, you know, our readers and authors sort of expect us to keep um, a, a high bar for the journal. I mean, that's mm -hmm. why people want to publish in Neuron is because we, we have a reputation for rigor. So, I mean, I do think um, the kind of busyness factor and the constraints that that places on peer review um, is a problem. I mean, I think it's a problem in general for science. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it probably also is reflected in um, the lack of time that, you know, a lot of lab heads may have for, you know, thinking about managing the direction of their, their labs. I mean, I think it's amazing the level of responsibility that's really put on lab heads in, in moving these kind of micro companies forward, if you will. Yeah. And yet they're spending an enormous amount of time these days, um, frankly, writing, writing grants, doing administrative duties. And, um, that's important, but it's, you know, it's not central to kind of the scientific endeavor. Mm-hmm. I mean, are people really saying no to peer review? Or again, you're saying this is really a time issue. I mean, do we need more incentives for people to be spending more time on peer review? Or is there more? Well, I think people, I mean, we just, I think we give people the option of, of reviewing, right? So, I mean, I, we hope that people, if they say yes to review, that they're going to be able to review in a timely manner and that they're going to be able to put the amount of time in that the paper takes. So I don't want to imply that when people review for us, they, you know, they, they skip over their, their duties. It's more that I think reasonable people managing their time when they get an invitation like that. If they can't do it, they're going to say no. And so it does even take us at Neuron, mm -hmm. you know, inviting several more people than you would need to get the three people that you would need. Mm -hmm. I mean, the incentives around peer reviewing have always been loose. They have been that the system functions kind of out of that altruism that, um, you know, you want your paper well reviewed. And so you, you review. I think there's also some personal incentives around it. Like it's, you know, it's, it should be exciting to review for a journal like Neuron. You get to see work on the leading edge. It's it's good work. Uh, as a reviewer, I think you really fine-tune your ability to be a better author uh -huh. just by being a part of that process, seeing what the other reviewers have to say, seeing how decisions are made. And so I think for younger people, especially postdocs, I often say that one good reason to do it is just to become a better author, and, mm -hmm. and you definitely do. Um I think you you learn a lot about publishing um, beyond just you know your own paper. I think you learn a lot about kind of how the editorial process works, and that's another good reason. I mean, the one incentive that we we don't have that people talk about a lot is is paying reviewers, whether yeah. that would be an incentive. And I mean, it's certainly a reasonable thing to look at. The question really becomes where where do you set that? Like, what would the payment be? How much would it be? How much would it take to sort of make it worth it for for people? Mm -hmm. And I'm I'm not sure. I have a strong opinion on that. I mean, I certainly think that it's important to show reviewers that they're they're valued. I think some people might be financially incentivized. I think many people wouldn't. Yeah, I, I think it would be nice if it could be somehow tied to uh, funding. You know, if you um, for NIH grants, if you are a good reviewer and you get that you know gold star from the whoever publications, that's you know, right, it can help you gain some some funding. I'm not sure. You know. Um, we're graduate students, so I've never written a grant, but I'm not sure if the NIH has a requirement for peer review. 
uh, in the grant application for you know K99s or whatever. So there's some programs. Um, Elsevier, which is uh, Cell Press's parent company, has a reviewer recognition program that, that uh-huh. they've been experimenting with different ways of recognizing reviewers. Um, there are things like that. Getting a piece of paper or something indicates that you've re- reviewed for X, Y, and Z journals for, you know, however many reviews. I mean, obviously mm-hmm. there's confidentiality issues around being able to say right. w- which papers you reviewed. There are, there's programs like that. And we've, we've certainly discussed things like that at Cell Press. We don't have anything in place right now. For students and postdocs, I think when I give talks to students and postdocs, I usually encourage them strongly to get uh, the mentoring and how to review a paper. I mean, for students, I think it's just a good thing to do. I mean, again, it makes you a better author. I think seeing the inside of the process is important um, because it's going to be the process that you're a part of when, when Mm -hmm. you're a research scientist in the field, whether you're an academic or somewhere outside of academia. As a postdoc, I mean, I feel like it's mission critical. And I usually (laughs) tell postdocs, if you have not reviewed a paper as a postdoc, and your PI hasn't come to you, uh, which I don't really think is their responsibility to ask you to co-review with them, you should be asking them because it's a critical part of your um, job profile when when you're a working scientist is to Mm -hmm. be able to review papers. And uh, it's just really, really important to get that mentoring and training in the same way that you get mentoring and training around how to design an experiment, how to write a paper, how to write a grant. It should be you know, a number one. I mean, like I said, for students, a uh, great thing to do. I think most PIs are pretty happy to work with you on that. And as a postdoc, if you haven't done it, like get in their office and figure out a way to do it soon because you're going to need that skill set. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a way do you think to to sort of learn uh, how to be a good reviewer? Are there certain characteristics in good reviews that you see come up over and over again as far as, you know, what particular aspects of the paper that do or don't focus on um, the sort of language that they use if they're, you know, not too harsh, but not too gentle either? Yeah, I think there's, uh, I mean, I think there's probably lots of ways to be a good reviewer. I mean, obviously, um, I mean, one is to really make sure that when you're reviewing the paper, you feel like your skills and your expertise are kind of well matched to the paper. I mean, sometimes people will get papers from editors that they're just not the right person for, or maybe mm-hmm. that you feel like your expertise is is leaning towards one part of um, a diverse study, and that's that's the first thing is kind of know what you're reviewing, and um, I guess don't pass critical judgment on things that you don't know anything about, and it's yeah. it's fine I think to come to an editor and say, listen, in this you know highly diverse interdisciplinary study, I can comment on the genetics, but I am not a physiologist, I'm not going to comment on that part of the paper. It gives editors information for balancing the other reviews. So that's the first thing is know what you're reviewing. Uh-huh. Do you uh, see that often? Reviewers actually saying, I'm, you know, I'm not an expert in this part. Well, of- usually if, if, if the editor's doing their job, they know that uh-huh. um, and that they may all already be giving the, the um, scientists that lead. And this doesn't happen for all papers, but now that there's so many papers that are interdisciplinary going from maybe molecular to systems, you know, even mm-hmm. up to theory that, that, you know, if I'm going to ask a theorist to review a paper like that, maybe they would have some comp- context for the molecular biology. I'm kind of making this up, but maybe they won't. And yeah. so usually if an editor, if I'm only wanting them to necessarily take deep responsibility for one part of it, I would let them know that in the beginning and let them know, yeah, I have other reviewers to cover those other sides. Mm-hmm. I mean, other things about being a good reviewer is, I think being technically rigorous, um, but also being practical. And I think um, combining that with being very clear. Um, At the end of the day, when reviewers write reports, at least for us at Neuron, 
they're usually pretty in depth, but we're not looking for like a ten page report, uh-huh. right? Usually in a in a, a page or two, you're summarizing what the paper's about. Um, what the authors find or what they claim to find, how rigorously supported you think those conclusions are, and then ways of improving the paper um, and with an overall editorial recommendation. And so I think where sometimes reviews are challenging, and this is why I think editors exist as translators for this, is just when some of that is kind of muddled and, and messy. So maybe maybe they're clear on what they think the paper has, or they're clear on representing what the author thinks the paper has shown, but they're less clear to either the author or the editor what their recommendation is, sort of where they think it would fit within uh-huh. Neuron or might not fit. Or maybe um, maybe they have a long list of things that they want the that they think the author needs to do to support the paper, support the conclusions um, for a paper that would be in Neuron, but they're not clear on kind of which of that long list is actually, you know, mission critical and, and which are more points of or interest or, or maybe sort of supplementary points that wouldn't need to be in the paper itself. So I think learning as a reviewer how to be clear, and you're, you're kind of speaking to two audiences. You're speaking to obviously the author, mm-hmm. but also the editor. I mean, you're making recommendations to the editor, and um, that, should, that all has to happen in the same review in order for the authors and the editors to understand one another. I mean, I think one of the most difficult things as an editor is if you have – um, a review that speaks to the author and sort of has a tonality and uh, a recommendation that says one thing, but then in, in recommendations to the editor, whether it's um, in your, you know, we have a, the ability for uh, reviewers to kind of give recommendations that are separate from the review itself, or you can send a separate email to the editor. When those two sort of are mismatched, it's very, very difficult. Uh-huh. Um, and I think that sometimes comes into play when frankly, reviewers just aren't clear. Um, and we're trying, you know, new things in terms of working with reviewers to try to create structure to the to the review form itself to make that clearer and easier. Mm-hmm. Back to this time issue. Yeah. You're saying papers are very large and complicated yeah. these days. Um, there was actually an interesting opinion piece by Ron Vale from UCSF, and he was saying, or he was actually showing figures that show how, even though the amount of text in papers is not actually increasing, the complexity of the figures and For the sure. number of panels is increasing. And he's saying that what's leading to this current, some people have said, crisis where trainees are taking longer and longer to complete their training in science. Um, do you sort of agree with this, that, you know, if a story needs to be complete to get into a journal, is that is that really necessary? I mean, I I read the Ron Vale piece. I thought it was really interesting. Actually, we have a annual journal strategy day, and we mm-hmm. discussed it there. Um, so I agree with um, certainly a lot of it, the observations. Like I certainly think it's true. I, I you know said it before that that papers are becoming more interdisciplinary, more diverse. Um, mm-hmm. I mean that ends up kind of bearing out in terms of number of figures, and I don't think. Text is actually the main thing, but yes, number of figures, number of supplemental figures. I mean, there's all sorts of ways that you can see that. I don't really know what the solution to that is. I mean, I think some of why that's happening is because um, studies are more complex and we have kind of more um, technological resources and, and more just general analytic resources that we can bring to bear on whatever the problem is. So I think, and it, things do move quicker in, in lots of ways. And so maybe there's just more opportunities to bring more together in one study. Um, I also think there's just more scientists out there, and there's, there's um, uh, I don't know how to quite put it, um, 
the riches of the enterprise in some ways, right? So that there were many fewer labs t 20, 30 years ago, and those have propagated into many, many more labs mm -hmm. that are um, highly skilled, you know, people with great ideas and new ways of looking at problems. But there's then not many, many, many more spaces and journals. Uh, certainly, mm -hmm. there probably are many, many more spaces and journals across the board, but not many, many more spaces in top tier journals. And so there's a little bit of sort of competition for space in some ways. Um, I think some of it, and I certainly saw this even 20 years ago as a student at UCSF, there's, you know, the ambition of students and postdocs to really want to do ambitious, wide scope work, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't know exactly what the solution is. I mean, I don't certainly don't see editors sitting around saying, you know, we only want 14 figure papers, each that has paper has to have, you know, 14 figures with, with seven panels each. I think it's it's the sort of the range of the work that is coming forward. Um, there is a focus on interdisciplinary. I think that also sort of breeds bigger papers. Um, and, you know, I think that there are places where people can still publish more limited stories. That is true. It's probably not going to be a journal like Neuron necessarily. I mean, there's, there, there's certainly other ways of chunking out the work if people are interested in that. Mm -hmm. Do you think so? You think the pressure comes more from the community at large to have these? Models? Well, I think, as I said earlier, I mean, I do think the scientific enterprise is it's very symbiotic and interlaced. So it's it's not, I think, just that journals are driving this. I think there's other factors at play. It's also, um, you know, the nature of the grant process. It's it's um, what people think they need to have in a body of work in order to get a job. Mm -hmm. um, there's just lots of things that are interlaced. I don't think it's necessarily one one just driving the other. Um, I mean, in the same way that, um, I mean, I do think that there's a tight interrelationship between people obviously wanting to publish in journals like Neuron, Cell, Science, Nature, because of the perception, at least, that that's what it takes to get a job. I mean, I, I think there's probably good reasons to kind of want to try to nudge the field to question that perception. Mm -hmm. um, and I think when you talk to a lot of PIs, um, both in the U.S. and internationally about, well, is that really true? Is that really the only candidates that you look at are people who get cell science and nature papers? I think it's a lot less rigid than students and postdocs believe, but, you know, I can certainly understand students and postdocs coming through the process in the sea of other students and postdocs coming through the process in wanting to kind of um, place their best bets on, you know, a high-profile paper as, as the key to a job. I get where that comes from. I just, I don't, I think there's a perception issue in terms of whether it's really the key to a great job and a successful career. And I say that as an editor of a journal that, you know, <laughs> people aspire to in that way. So Yeah, I also feel like that, that sort of mentality also puts um, a lot of pressure to maybe, well, I guess, I don't know. So this is going to go to our next topic, too, of reproducibility. Mm -hmm. Maybe to... Um, not be as vigorous or rigorous with your controls or not, not maybe not include all the negative data. I, I don't know. This is, this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently, that it seems we're setting up the system for people who are a little bit more dishonest to be more successful than the people who are honest. I'm not sure I agree with that. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't think I, we're at that stage now, but I feel like the that's sort of the, the yeah. pressure I feel as a graduate student. What everyone's telling me, there's so few jobs and, you know, you have to be this and that and you have to get, you know, exactly what you were just saying. Like, yeah. oh, you need those science now, uh, cell, nature yeah. papers, that sort of thing. It just seems like, well, you know, if you're not able to achieve that, then, you know, you're going to quit. But if you're very maybe 
I don't know. I, I feel like it's just it's yeah. just really putting so much pressure yeah. on the whole system and well, all the people in the system. To paraphrase it, maybe it's like in the rush to get a big story with a lot of you know figures and different moving parts, you could see that somebody you know if one piece doesn't fit, like how can we make it fit? Um, and right. I think, I think there's this worry, and maybe it's it's false, but uh, there is this worry. Yeah. yeah, and I think it's it's a reasonable worry, and I'm sure that one could pull out examples of where that has happened, but. Um, I can point to so many more examples of people uh, who, who who are completely ethical, who spend the extra time, who mm-hmm. place a high personal and professional value on on rigor, on reproducibility, on honesty, on on getting it right. Um, and I think there's far more people like that in the field. In fact, I think they're the norm, not the aberration. I think the opposite is true. I think the the people who are cutting the corners to just get that paper in are taking huge risks because first of all, like the, you know, the lens of the field is on this right now mm-hmm. and um, it, you're unlikely to get away for, with it for very long. And at the end of the day, and I say this, um, you know, often in, in talks to students and postdocs, but it's, I think something, you know, everyone in life um, could take in whether you're a scientist or not is uh, your reputation is kind of the biggest thing that you have. Right. Um, mm-hmm. And um, especially in science where, where, um, your reputation just becomes so important for, I think, other parts of your professional life, sort of attracting the right people to your lab, um, how you develop your collaborations. I mean, you don't want to mess with that. And and we all know this. I mean, you know, we all know kind of who, who you hear scientists who sort of have uh, the reputation for maybe skirting corners. And, you know, maybe some of them are even successful and maybe that breeds kind of this idea, well, they can get away with it. But I think in general, uh, in the long run, you, you you don't. And I think most scientists really want to be in science um, for the sake of knowledge and to do the right thing and to, to do good work and to be known for that. I think that there is um, dangers around kind of this pressure for speed. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a tension there. And of course, there's, you know, the importance of um, getting work out quickly. I mean, we all talk about them publication, like how can you shorten the time between submission and ultimate publication? And you, you know, we don't want that stretching out um, endlessly. Um, but at the same time, there's a pressure, certainly, you know, certainly we feel it as editors to really turn around reviews very quickly. And I'm sure reviewers feel it too when they're getting our, our chasing emails. <laughs> um, but the, you know, the flip side of that, that, um, push on speed and moving things through quickly is is that you know you can inadvertently cut corners which i think is maybe more the problem that we ought to be curbing than people who are outright trying mm-hmm. to skirt the lines and more about um you know where the, the the small mistakes coming in when when the process is just pushed too hard and that can happen at any level i mean that's not necessarily somebody cheating at the level of, um, you know, analysis or figure presentation when they're in the process of putting the papers together. I mean, I think there's probably as many problems in terms of earlier steps when you're thinking about experimental design and maybe in the rush to kind of get going, you Mm -hmm. don't think hard enough about how to set up your experiment. And you really can't fix that at the point that you're analyzing or putting it into a paper. So I think just taking the time to do things right and to place kind of value as a community on getting it right Mm-hmm. Um, more than on getting it out fast, um, w- w- you know, it would certainly make a difference across the board. But, you know, I get why that's hard in in our current climate. Mm-hmm. 
Have you have you given any thought to retraction? So there are lots of people talking about. Um, I've, I saw some statistics somewhere. They were even you know ranking the journals by the number of retractions. And but when I look at a retraction, there's often not that much information. You don't know if the author made an honest mistake and went back and decided to change it, and what they really did was the right thing, or you know, or if, you know why why do some journals get more retractions? It's just because they get more attention and somebody else gave more scrutiny. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. So Cell Press has been um, putting a lot of effort into these kinds of issues around. Uh, you know, rigor and reproducibility and retractions um, and vetting papers and situations for post-publication is a big part of that. Um, and sort of I, I haven't been the one driving um, some of those discussions at Cell Press, but colleagues who have certainly, um, I think, are committed to the idea, first of all, that it's important for a journal to not just vet what comes out, but w- what happens after papers come out. And mm-hmm. so when issues arise, we take all issues very seriously. Um, As you can imagine, investigating situations or whether it's, you know, a a seemingly small error uh, that's innocent and um, a mistake versus something that maybe is more intentionally um, fraudulent. All of those have to be taken very seriously. There are difficult situations to evaluate and to investigate carefully. We work closely with institutional uh, committees that are involved in investigating things at the level of the institution. Uh, if need be, we certainly also get involved with, with funding agencies. Um, I think there's a lot of attention being paid towards making retraction statements more informational. Mm-hmm. I think it's unlikely that they're going to be able to kind of give you the full, you know, blow by blow of, of what happened. But I think one of the goals is to have retractions be maybe less associated with fraud. I mean, there's still going to Mm -hmm. be cases where something needs to be retracted because it's fraud and because somebody intentionally um, did something wrong. But there's cases where papers need to be retracted where no one did anything wrong, where it was an unintentional mistake, but a mistake that's big enough to to take down the conclusions of the paper. In that Mm -hmm. case, the paper needs to be retracted. And both of those are retractions, but ideally, I think retraction statements would make that clearer so that there's less of a kind of, you know, big scarlet letter on having an R yeah. on your paper and that, that that there's more, I think, incentive then for authors who after the fact, maybe themselves or through feedback to them, um, notice that something went wrong and that they need to correct it. Mm-hmm. And we also have things that are um, called corrections, which would correct a paper, but those are really only appropriate in cases where the correction doesn't undercut the major conclusions of the paper. So this is something Cell Press is working on um, quite intimately. I think other journals are as as well, and, and we're definitely aware of it as being an important need in the community. Mm-hmm. So in terms of uh, sort of a scientist's ability to, to reproduce a study, a problem that I've frequently run into, especially in, in the bigger journals, is sort of sparsity of information in the method section. Mm-hmm. Um, especially, you'll, you know, you'll read a paper, and instead of actually writing out what they did, they'll refer you to another paper and say, mm-hmm. you know, see here. Um, and sometimes that's fine, and the other paper has a you know, more detailed um, you know, explanation of what they did. But n- too frequently, that paper will refer you to another paper and then to mm-hmm. another paper and so on, and you keep going back. And I know for me, the most egregious example that ever happened, I was trying to, you know, replicate, um, you know, this experiment, and I was trying to figure out from the paper how much of this chemical I needed to add. And they didn't say, and they said, you know, they referenced another paper. And so I went back about three papers, and then in that paper, in the, you know, explanation of how much of the chemical they added, they said they added the quote-unquote necessary amount. And mm-hmm. they didn't define what mm-hmm. that meant, necessary for whom, for what, um, 
And so, you know, that is, you know, obviously a very extreme exa- example, but do do method sections get peer review? Do the reviewers look at them? Do they criticize or critique the method section? Do the editors pay attention mm-hmm. to it? It seems like it's, you know, a really important part of the mm-hmm. paper, but it also seems to be the one that's the most neglected. Yeah. So that's a great question. Perfect question, um, because we actually, I, I totally agree um, that I think just probably through just various things happening, um, you know, in kind of publication history, I think the methods kind of have been curtailed. Mm -hmm. um, And that's not a good thing. I think everybody agrees on that. And we actually work on a big project at Cell Press to kind of rethink how we present methods. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, the challenge is kind of obvious, is especially for these kinds of papers that are highly interdisciplinary, very, you know, technically um, nuanced. Like, how do you get all of that information into one paper. I mean, right. even in the online environment, people have this idea that the online environment sort of allows for infinite papers. That's not really true. I mean, all of our papers are formatted, edited, mm-hmm. um, typeset. I mean, typeset sounds very old fashioned, mm-hmm. but there's, there's, you know, both monetary costs and I think resource costs in, in having kind of ultimate details in papers. I mean, authors don't also want to write method sections that are hundreds of pages long. So the way that we're approaching it, Cell Press, is to really kind of rethink kind of how we can present methods. So still within, you know, a contained system that it's not endless methods, but that it's more organized and, and both more organized for readers to be able to find information and for authors to be able to put the paper together in the first place. So more mm-hmm. guidelines on what we we need authors to show, more structure to how they should show it. So, for instance, um, we're thinking a lot about um, ways of um, indicating reagents and tools, so mm-hmm. making sure that that list is complete. We're working um, with uh, a, um, in collaboration with a, an RID project, which adds uh, essentially tags and IDs to things like antibodies and transgenic mouse lines, so this, that one c- the RIDs is resource identification. Resu- that's right, okay. right. So we just launched that. Um, we're thinking about ways that the method section can be organized so that a reader coming into the paper could really easily see. Okay, these are the, the the tools and the resources that mm-hmm. that, um, that that this method section sort of brings to bear to the study. So our approach to it again is 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 around kind of organizing the information, giving more guidelines to authors on what they should include, and then obviously kind of we'll need to kind of editorially kind of curb and vet things like you know the endless dance of referring back to previous papers. Mm-hmm. Um, we also feel like um, an important part of the method section is is directing people to a source, a person who can give more information, you know, when when one needs to kind of dig into the details. Because often um, it's it's very difficult to kind of know all the nuances of an experiment unless you talk to or email with the the, the person who did the experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are many labs. I mean, I think, you know, Carl Diveseroth's lab at Stanford here has done a great job of that for optogenetics who've kind of put a lot of effort into educating people on tools and techniques. But it's usually you know, details and information that um, hopefully exists to some degree in whatever the method or the protocol is, but often it's it's that hands-on information and the troubleshooting that you get afterwards. Yeah. So one of the things that we certainly will include in our new method section is a contact point related to that paper that um, that person commits to providing that information to other people who might want the information by whatever means that is, whether it's sharing protocols or or, mm-hmm. or, or by answering email questions. Um, so I, I agree with you, and I think there's a lot that can be done to make methods uh, clearer and kind of more uh, rich and user-friendly f- for for people who want to repeat the experiments or, or, frankly, who just want to understand what happened in the right. paper, even if they don't want to repeat it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Makes sense. 
Um, and one last thing I wanted to talk about um, is another kind of effort to alleviate reproducibility, I think, but it's also uh, kind of related to volume. So um, with John Sack, we also discussed the idea of overlay journals, which I mm-hmm. think is something you referred to. Um, so this is where pe- uh, authors put their data onto databases such as Figshare. And then the idea is that journals like Nature or Neuron or um, would come in and curate these data sets. Um, but largely such approaches haven't taken off, at least not yet. So do you have any um, opinions on this and thoughts on this kind of approach towards... I don't I, I don't know what to say about the. I don't know so much about the, I guess, the overlay journals and the way that you described it is mm-hmm. of journals coming in to curate existing mm-hmm. databases. I mean, I, I think the whole big data issue mm-hmm. is a huge one. Mm-hmm. I mean, beyond just, just journals, but an incredibly important one, especially for neuroscience. Mm-hmm. Um so, I mean, we are also at Cell Press and, and at Elsevier kind of looking for um, more opportunities for providing kind of more raw data as sort of background for the paper. So mm-hmm. less that the journals would come in and curate existing databases, mm-hmm. but more that um, authors submitting to a journal would either have the opportunity or be compelled to provide raw data behind um, the work in question. And we already, I mean, we have for a long time, um, encourage deposition in community-sanctioned databases. So, for instance, genetics data all goes to GenBank, um, protein data. There's a protein database as well. Um, not all communities have um, have such databases or have kind of, uh, um, I guess, a community consensus on what's the best place to deposit things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know a lot of those databases that exist are having trouble getting funding. And so mm-hmm. there's a question, I think, for the community at large, not just the neuroscience community, but... Um, science community in general, but I think it's it's particularly relevant for neuroscience is sort of how do we, you know, how are we as a community going to support deposition of, of, of data? I think everybody agrees that in principle, the philosophy of more open science and sharing of data is important, both for reproducibility and for people being able to build, build on work. Um, and, and frankly, for getting, you know, the most leverage out of um, public funds that went into generating that data in the first place. Mm-hmm. I think there's still a lot of discussions, you know, among scientists themselves on, um, you know, how much sharing is the right level of sharing. Um, you know, and some of that is, I think, some of these data sets, certainly in neuroscience, when you think about some of these, you know, behavioral and, and neural recording data sets are very hard to get. And I think that for some scientists, there's, there's definitely still, a, you know, an appreciated reluctance to have to give all that up the first time you publish. And there's some concerns, well, if, if, if you were compelled to provide all that data for anybody to just run with it the second you publish, would you even delay, maybe, maybe you would delay the first publication. Mm-hmm. So there's, it's just, I mean, you can understand where it comes from. They're very reasonable views. I think there's also very reasonable views that data in the absence of kind of meta information is not very valuable. And so just yeah. dumping data into Figshare or, or anywhere else without having the right meta information about how the experiments were done exactly, um, mm-hmm. how the analysis, you know, what's the right way to do the analysis is maybe more confusing than, than, than not. And I think that's a concern for certainly even some scientists who are kind of very savvy to, to the data analysis um, mm-hmm. aspects of it is just, uh, I've heard this from people, sort of a reluctance, like, well, I'm kind of nervous about putting this out there because right. people aren't going to know what to do with it. And then, you know, you're in this this um, kind of circular discussion on kind of what's the right way to to, to analyze it. Um, and that's also, I think, a reasonable concern. Um, these, especially when you think about neuroscience data, I mean, we're talking about, you know, masses, amounts of, 
data, um, mm-hmm. not just um, you know limited data sets like the, the kind that you might be able to post on Figshare. I mean, we're talking about you know large spans of temporal data, spatial data. That where do you even store that? Who pays for that? Who curates that? Who manages it? Who um, you know, make sure it, it's archived into the future. And I think there's not big consensus of this. I think there's a lot of discussion right now. Um, the journals are certainly involved in that. The major funding organizations, um, scientists themselves. We've published a couple of front pieces on some of the initiatives around data sharing. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's an incredibly important topic. It's a big one, I think, for the neuroscience community to get a handle on, especially um, given the complexity of neural data or a lot of neural data, it's not all neural data, maybe as relative to other fields where the data chunks are more discrete. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's not a not a simple solution right now. Is there anything to be learned from, so a lot of people have contrasted um, the culture in biology versus the culture in physics where they have archive and people put out, I don't know if it's so much data or, you know, published idea or ideas that is, has pre-published ideas yeah. into the community before it's officially published, I guess. Well, there's certainly more of that happening. So, I mean, there's there's journals like Archives, which, you know, had always had um, the support of a component of the neuroscience community. Mm-hmm. I mean, maybe some of ex-physicists or people on the system's end. Yeah. And now there's bioarchives, and mm. you know we we do allow people to to post at bioarchives or archives or a preprint server like that mm-hmm. prior to publication. It you know it has also has its costs and benefits, mm-hmm. um, but you know both for the community and individually. I mean I think it makes it a little bit hard to um, manage the the history of a paper. I mean papers. I honestly seeing this from the editor side, papers get a lot better in peer review, and mm-hmm. and that bioarchive paper. I mean that first version you know, may wind up being very different than the final story. And mm-hmm. I think there are opportunities, obviously, to correct and update in bioarchives. Um, I think as a scientist, I mean, you're putting it out there when it's on bioarchives and, and people can run with it and go with it. And uh, sometimes there's, you know, a significant delay before you actually get around to to publishing it. And, ma- you know, maybe there's an element of risk about losing relevancy or, or other papers kind of coming into the fold mm-hmm. um, that change the context in which you're reviewed. So th- there are certainly some risks, but I think, you know, overall the community seems seems more um, in tune to that kind of openness, and certainly the journals are there to support that, and we do. So we also wanted to talk a little bit about technology, and I think this is a good transition because we're talking about these huge data yeah. you know, archives, which takes a lot of technology. Um, so one thing I've heard you um, play with is the idea of machine learning to do peer review. Can you uh, maybe tell us a little yeah, bit about that idea? Or maybe just in general, how you think technology is going to shape the future of academic publishing? Yeah, so, I, I mean, I, I don't actually have, like, super strong ideas about how, like, machine learning is going to... Like, I, I was playing with that idea after hearing uh, some talks and, and doing some just kind of personal reading on AI and machine learning and and um, the degree to which this, you know, is changing our lives as a whole, not not certainly not just science, but in general. And, you know, also kind of, I think it was in my head around... Um, some of the, you know, the constant critique that you hear as an editor of like, well, peer review, it's subjective. Mm-hmm. And I think we as scientists have this um, idealized kind of um, vision that the only, you know, right evaluation is something that's purely objective. And, and just to kind of even questioning for myself, like, is that even possible? I mean, we, we ask reviewers to and editors to come out papers with an objective mind um, and it, is that even even possible? And is that even sort of desirable? I mean, do you really want to erase all kind of subjectivity? And and mm-hmm. and that the two the two kind of maybe um, thought elements sort of 
jogged together in my mind. So the idea of like a computer that, you know, or some version of a computer that might be able to give a truly objective, you know, view of um, a paper. I don't know what that would even be, like how you would train a computer to, to give that perspective and what what would be lost in that process. And mm-hmm. And my own view is that I don't think subjectivity... Um, in peer review or in anything else is necessarily a wholly bad thing. I mean, you want mm-hmm. fairness, you want balance, you want pragmatism. Mm-hmm. Um, but that I do think something is is lost when you lose you lose that human element. Um, I mean, I can imagine scenarios, and I could imagine you know some fantasy journal publisher whose sole interest is citations, mm-hmm. and you can easily you could do it now um, develop an algorithm and a process that would um, basically rig the system to give you a very high, whether it's impact factor or citation value. So just publish papers only in fields that are highly cited, um, you know, train the algorithms on papers that get highly cited and just, and just go from there. I'm confident that you could do that and you would have a journal and it would be have a high impact factor or whatever citation metric is, is your favorite or least favorite. Mm-hmm. But is that a journal that, um, that actually brings value to the field, to readers, to, to the, to the world? I, I don't think so. It's certainly not how I think about, um, you know, the success of Neuron. I don't think about citation metrics. We publish in fields that are, you know, frankly, <laughs> low on the citation scale. I mean, they're smaller fields. They're maybe still important fields, um, but but that they're just a smaller set of investigators who who are citing those papers, and, and we think about value in a different way. Mm-hmm. So I think that's where, um, you know, I'm not sure that that's where the future of publishing ought to go, but I think that, that that's, you know, I could imagine scenarios where where it might go in that direction. Um, I think there is going to be progressively kind of more attention paid to this concept of curation, just of mm-hmm. tell me what it is that that um, that's, that's strong, technically strong, rigorous, reproducible, interesting, you know, worth my knowing. And so I like to think, and maybe it's, fantasy of retaining my job in the face of AI, that there is a role for, for you know, jobs like mine and, and other kinds of jobs that are about curation. And mm-hmm. I see this also, like, not just in the scientific world, but when you look at, um, you know, what's happening kind of on the internet writ large and in, in sort of mass publications, like there was a time when people thought, oh, you know, good journalism is going to disappear. I mean, it's already true that you know, many there's many articles online that are written by by um, machines, but that you know journals or newspapers like the New York Times and uh, magazines like the New Yorker are going to going to disappear. And I think that there, there's been a comeback. I think because of that same concept that people want authoritative curation, that they don't want to weed through everything that's out there to kind of figure out what's you know whether it's you know timely or or, or if that's the value they're placing on it or rigorous or important to know for their field. So, I mean, I think that that's where the future is. I mean, so a little bit of a counterpart to technology. I think technology is going to be great for streamlining many parts of the process. But at the end of the day, you know, science remains a human endeavor. And I think kind of the evaluation of science will need to be as well. I'm actually <laughs> curious about your your opinion on it. Um, so I don't know if you're familiar with NIH Commons. So NIH, I guess last year or year before, launched um, a new feature where if you have if you're an, a co-author on a paper that's in PubMed, you can sign up for an account and then basically leave comments on research papers. Yeah. Um, 
Um, so I have read a few. So there's not that many comments on papers that are in my own field, but I, you know, I, especially when it first launched, I was, you know, very curious and sort of read through a lot of the comments. And some of them are pretty insightful. Some of them are, you know, a little bit catty, I guess. But mm-hmm. I was just curious what your opinion is on that, and if you. I think that would be an appropriate thing for a journal to have comment sections on research papers, not just, you know, I, I know a lot of them have them on like the news and reviews and yeah. sort of commentary and stuff like that, but not necessarily in the research. Well, we actually have had for a very long time comments, uh, the com- the capacity to comment on research papers on cell.com on, on the cell website, uh-huh. uh, including on neuron papers uh, going way back. Um, oh, okay. But the problem has been, and this is not just our experience that I think most journals experience this. It's really hard to get people to comment. Right. And some of it is, I think, um, maybe sort of the sociology of fields, sort of like a nervousness. Some of it is, some of it is just technology. Is, is I think our comments are a little buried, and and maybe not, you know, they're obviously not as um, kind of rigorously exploited as say the comment section of the New York Times or or, mm-hmm. or you know different websites. Um, but I mean, the big thing has been that I think people don't kind of want to comment very openly. I mean, there's a, there's a feeling of, of nervousness around that about, um, repercussions. There's also, I think some people have told me that they choose not to comment because it's not a paper. So they'll just wait till the next paper to kind of bring the argument forward. But we, but we're seeing a little bit more. I mean, we've sort of had an uptick at Neuron recently. I mean, handfuls, not not sort of a groundswell. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's other, lots of other places just because of te- technology coming through um, in the online environment that offer people that opportunity. But I think it's not maybe as visible or as coalesced. So mm-hmm. for instance, there are platforms like, like PubPeer. PubPeer is a platform that people comment on. And personally, um, I think I think there's interesting things said on PubPeer, but I think the fact that it's anonymous is problematic. Yeah, that's um, that's always going to be a problem. You know, um, the the comments that you mentioned. I think Twitter. There's just a lot more engagement on Twitter. It's not everybody, right? Mm-hmm. And it's it's still sort of inner circles. Um, I think you in different subfields. I see this a lot in the stem cell community. There's some really interesting kind of websites. Often they're kind of um, curated. You know that word by postdocs who really kind of get into to bringing together information. I mean, the, the, you know, the crisis around um, the stem cell papers and the stem cell field. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that was to some extent sort of originally broken open on, on some, um, you know, personally created websites. So I think that there is kind of more opportunity to comment. I still see it as not being something that maybe is um, mainstream. It's not the way that I think that, that, um, I don't know whether it's a generational thing and that it will change or if it's just um, what it is that not everybody is seeing that as kind of um, an appropriate forum to discuss papers. And I wish more people did. I mean, because you hear from people that in their journal clubs and in, you know, um, the the back of the auditorium at meetings that there's just a lot of hustle and bustle and, and conversation about papers. And I think there's a benefit for a kind of broader community being able to um, be a part of that or or even just be able to read it, even if they're not contributing themselves. Mm-hmm. So I hope people are more um, open to the idea of commenting, obviously a- appropriately, because I agree with you that uh, in some places I think the comments are, you know, catty or mm-hmm. not practical or not pragmatic. I mean, I think there aren't very many papers anywhere that are published that are, you know, perfect that you can't pick holes right. into. But I think that's not the question. The really question is, um, a, a bigger one is this sort of an important piece of information, holes and all, that that, that, that it's important for the field to be able to see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Great, great. 
Well, I think this is a good, great interview, great chat. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. No problem. It was really fun. We've been talking to Katya Bros, Editor-in-Chief of Neuron. Thank you all for listening. Neurotalk is a production of the Right West. Neurotalk was founded by Erica Senor, Mark Padalina, and Forrest Coleman. This episode was produced by uh, Ada Yi and Erica Senor. Adam Fuchel and Kyle Riley composed and performed our theme song. You can find all of the past episodes of Neurotalk and our radio show Brains and Bourbon, as well as articles about everything neuroscience, by visiting our website at www.neuritewest.org, spelled N-E-U-W-R-I-T-E-West.org. This is Neurotalk, I'm Ada Yi. And I'm Erica Senor. Thank you.